Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I'm presenting a series of programs on the subject of baptism, and today's program is a continuation of the previous broadcast. In the previous broadcast, I was explaining that people will engage in baptism. They will be baptized or they will encourage others to be baptized for various reasons. Probably the most common reason that I have heard people use in order to justify a baptism is that it is the first act of obedience. And I explained this in the previous program, that if this is the first act of obedience, then if you don't do it, it's going to be the first act of disobedience. I also explained in the previous program that people will do this in order to be like Jesus or to be like the disciples because Jesus was baptized, the disciples were baptized, so you also ought to be baptized in order to follow in their footsteps, in order to be like them, to go through the transitions that they went through. And I was explaining these reasons in the previous program. In this program, I would like to start out by saying that people do these things. People have reasons to be baptized. And in general, I want you to know that people do this because they are sincere, because it is an expression of sincerity. That regardless of the reasons that people choose in order to justify their behavior or in order to justify encouraging others to engage in this behavior, the reasons are generally sincere, and people do what they sincerely believe. And on that basis, I certainly find no fault with anyone. If this is what you believe, if this is what you want to do, then by all means, I think you should be encouraged to do that. But when I say that, I do say that in the context of you should really believe what you believe so that the results of what you believe will fully be experienced. I continually find that many people have convictions about things, they believe certain things, but they don't have enough conviction. They don't have enough sincerity. They don't have enough devotion. They are not truly committed to what they believe, enough for it to have its full effect in their lives. When it comes to any form of law, and baptism becomes a form of law for many people, when it becomes to any aspect of how you should be living, otherwise you're going to be condemned by the living God. When it comes to things like this, I don't think people really believe what they say they believe. Because if they did, it would eventually lead them to the point of total, complete condemnation to the extent where they will then reevaluate what they believe. And this is why I encourage people to really follow through with what they believe, because I believe it will eventually lead them to the point of absolute despair, depression, destruction, so that they will reevaluate on their own. They don't need me to do that. They will reevaluate on their own what they are believing after recognizing that they are in a form of bondage that they don't think they should be in. And that's true. They should not be in that form of bondage. The Lord our God came to provide us with freedom. He came to provide us with liberty. He came to set us free from the burdens of the law. His yoke is light. His burden is light. It is not heavy. He has promised us peace and rest in our hearts right now. And so if you don't have it, 
then it's probably because you're believing something that is not true. Now, another reason that people will give in order to justify baptism is to testify of your commitment, that it is a way of testifying that you have committed yourself to the new covenant, whatever that means. You have committed yourself to a life of repentance and obedience, perhaps. It is a way of testifying that you now believe something different than what you believed before. Now, this testimony that people often describe, a testimony of testifying of your faith, it's normally put in the context of testifying to the world, testifying to unbelievers, so that unbelievers will be so impressed by your decision that you were willing to be dunked in water even in order to be a part of the Lord Jesus and the new covenant, that that kind of testimony will be inspirational to unbelievers so that they also will see your conviction, take your faith seriously, and consider whether or not they should also take the message of the Lord Jesus seriously. This is how baptism is often advertised and a reason why people encourage others to be baptized. But one thing that I find when it comes to this is that when a person is baptized, it is unusual for unbelievers to be notified, invited, and also attend the baptismal. This is somewhat unusual. Normally, the baptism is done before believers, not before unbelievers. Unbelievers have other things to do with their life. They're not normally wanting to take time out of their busy day to go and watch a baptismal in order to question their faith, their values, and what they believe. That's not normally what people do with their time. This is normally a testimony before believers, not unbelievers. And while people may advertise it as a testimony before unbelievers, that may be desired, that may be what people want, that may be what people think is what's going to happen, but that isn't what happens. What happens in general is that this is a testimony before believers. Now, I do understand that there can be exceptions to this. I'm not speaking to the exceptions. I'm speaking to the general rule. The general rule is that this is a testimony before believers, and so it is a way instead of being accepted within the believers, not a way to call unbelievers to be accepted by believers, but it is a way for a new convert to then integrate or be a part of the new community that they are going to become a part of. That community is a church, a denomination. It is a way of being embraced by an existing church community to testify to them, to testify to the church, not to the world. That's how this normally plays out. So regardless of what people believe, regardless of what people intend or what they advertise, you really have to take a close look at what actually happens, what the end result truly is. And for the most part, this is it. Now, what I would like to say again is that the sincerity of individuals is not in question here. The issue that I would really like to focus on is something else, and that is that people are expecting a result to occur, but it generally doesn't occur. The reason why I am willing to say this and why I can say this with great conviction is because baptism was not established by our God for these purposes. We may believe that he did. People may have great conviction that he did, but it doesn't mean that he did. Sincerity is not the measurement of truth or error. People can be very sincere and yet sincerely wrong. And that's why I spent the first programs talking about the historical context of this subject. 
explaining why it was established, explaining why our God used what someone else had already established. I explained the history and the foundation for this in order to exaggerate the point that I'm going to make right now. And that is that people are using baptism for a purpose that God never intended. That's the point. People are using baptism for a purpose that the Pharisees never intended when they first established it. People are using baptism for a different reason than what John the Baptist was using it for. People are using it for a different purpose. And I'm not willing to say that that is evil, necessarily. I'm not willing to say that. I'm just wanting to say that people need to recognize the original purposes that it was established for so that they can have an appreciation for that. And if you want to come up with a different purpose now, if you want to create a different tradition now, if you want to create a different sacrament now or something like that, by all means, go ahead. But do not do that at the expense Do not do that at the expense of what it was originally established for and how our God used it. Do not suggest that what you are doing now has anything to do with what was described in the New Testament if it doesn't. Don't do that. Be honest. Be direct and say that this is a new thing. This is a new theology, a new idea something that we are doing right now that certainly has no basis in the scriptures, or perhaps it may have some extracted basis. People make metaphorical similarities, things like that, by all means, but at least be honest, at least be direct. Otherwise, it leads to a form of condemnation that simply should not exist at all. Now, that's from the people's point of view. What I've just described is the various reasons that people give from the people's point of view, from the point of view of those who are not part of religious leadership. That's one point of view. But now I'm going to change a little bit. I'm going to shift my approach and talk about the subject of baptism and the reasons why people perform baptisms from the leadership's point of view, because there is a distinct difference between the two. The people who are converting have one perspective, but the people who are doing the converting have a different perspective. And this is something that is normally hidden. People talk about this behind closed doors, and I'm going to talk about it openly right now. And that is that the leadership often have a different perspective than the congregation who they are leading. And this is enforced by the leadership, of course. The leadership say one thing, but they actually believe something else. And I'm going to tell you what people really believe right now. What people believe from a leadership perspective is that this is a way of measuring the effectiveness of their ministry. They don't normally advertise it in this context, but in many ways, baptism from a leadership's point of view has more to do with measuring the effectiveness of the leadership than it is in measuring the commitment of the individuals who are turning to the Lord Jesus and the New Covenant. Again, those things are very different. Sometimes we like to look at them as the same, but for the most part, I have found that they are not the same. They are actually very different. That the measurement of the effectiveness of the leadership is separated from the measurement of the conviction of the people. People do try to harmonize that by saying, well, we want to measure our effectiveness by determining the commitment of the people, but that is not necessarily the same. Those things are normally separated because there are different things that people have in mind. For example, from the congregational's point of view, yes, people want to truly have a personal relationship with the living God. 
But from the leadership's point of view, they're interested in the number of baptisms they can perform, not necessarily because they want people to have a commitment to the Lord, but because there are other motives, there are other reasons. And let me tell you what some of these reasons are. One of the most common reasons why leadership will want to have a number of baptisms in their congregation is so they can report those results. They need to be able to report some results to the headquarters of the denomination that they're a part of. They need to be able to report these results to other pastors, other congregations in order to justify their existence. And this is why. The reason why is because a lot of support, a lot of financial support comes from other denominations. It comes from other churches. There are many congregations that are not really self-supporting. Many congregations depend on either the financial resources from other congregations or the headquarters of a denomination, or in order to maintain their right standing with the denomination or to maintain their right standing with other congregations, other churches, pastors need to show that they have a number of baptisms. When pastors get together, for example, or when pastors have a pastor's conference or they get together with their denomination, people who they are accountable to, people will ask them, can you show me how you justify your effectiveness? Can you explain how you are effective and why? And they will say, well, I've had a certain number of baptisms. This is one of the ways that they justify what they do and that they justify the appeal that they will make for additional support additional endorsement, or other things that they request in order to establish their purpose, their value, in order to establish their identity, and to justify their position. In order to do this, they normally use the number of baptisms that they have had. Now, not all congregations are like this, of course, but there are enough congregations who do this in order to say that this actually takes place, that people are using baptism as what they call a metric a measurement, something that they can use to measure the effectiveness of their ministry and in order to justify the fundraising activities that they perform afterwards. This is a very important part of religious activity. You need to understand this, that from the leadership's point of view, they often think in these terms. And if not directly, if not publicly, they do this indirectly, they do this privately, because this comes down to the bottom line. The bottom line is, where is the money going to come from? And how are you going to justify the expense of it? That's often the bottom line for many congregations, for many ministries. You need to understand this if you're going to understand the motive that people have in pushing this. This is a motive. You see, from the people's point of view, yes, there can be a form of religious exhibitionism. I think that is the best description I can come up with from a congregational point of view. The people perform Baptism is a form of religious exhibitionism in order to show off, in order to show other people, in order to be accepted by other people. That while in many cases there may be great sincerity, in other cases it's not really about sincerity. For the individual who is being baptized, yes, it might be a case of great sincerity. But for the others, for the people who are witnessing, for the other people who are observing, for the other people who are performing the ritual, it is a form of religious exhibitionism, first to the public and secondary, indirectly, to others in order to justify additional fundraising requests or to justify 
the person's effectiveness so that they can have speaking engagements in other congregations because, hey, this guy managed to get a thousand baptisms. If he was able to do that, let's have him come and speak here and tell us about the things of God. Maybe we can have that many baptisms as well. Then we can measure. We have a metric by which we can justify our existence by saying we got a thousand people to do this. These are the kinds of things that go on behind closed doors that people don't want to recognize. They don't want to admit that this is what's happening, but it is in many cases. So this is a motive that people don't know about. And I want you to know that this often is a primary motive from the leadership in order to push this on the congregations. This has to be included in the reasons why people are baptized. Because if you don't include this as one of the reasons, then you don't have a full picture. You don't have a full perspective concerning what's really going on around you. And so I wanted to take the opportunity right now to expose this, to bring it out into the open so that people will see what's really going on around them or so that people can see exactly what they're really participating in. Because I don't think people really recognize what they're actually participating in. This idea of metrics is a very important idea. It's a very important question, and many people have been asking this question, especially recently. There's been a number of conventions, a number of conferences that have been held about the subject of Christian metrics. How do we truly measure the effectiveness of what people teach and of what people believe? And there has been various attempts that people have made in order to justify their activities, in order to justify what they teach or what they believe, and people are trying to measure this. They are really trying to find good measurements to determine the effectiveness of an organization. And the reason why is because if they can come up with a good, justifiable measurement, like I said, they can appeal for funding. They can do this. I do this on occasion. I talk about how many people are downloading programs from my website, or I talk about how many letters I have received. I have done this on occasion in order to explain to people that the work that I am doing is having an impact. There are various ways of measuring this. I'm not saying that there's anything evil about trying to measure the effectiveness of the work that people perform. I really believe that we should do that. But when it comes to baptism, I don't think it's a good idea to baptize people so that you can add a number to your count. I don't think that's the right thing to do. I don't manipulate people with the metrics that I give. I just simply state the facts. I say, look, this is a way in order to show that the work that I have been doing is effective, or this is a way of showing that it's not being that effective. There are various conclusions that people can come to, but as soon as I say something like, hey, look at what I'm doing, and because of that, you need to get on board, otherwise you're not going to be blessed by God, or you're not going to participate in something that he's involved in, you know, people get offended by the way that I say that quite often. Sometimes I say, look what I have done. I have done this. I have done this. I have made this contribution. I've made that contribution. And then people call me or they send me letters or something and say things like, you know, you need to give God credit. I love responses like that because my response to that is very simple. Do you really believe that God is the one who has done this? If you believe that, then why is it that you're not giving to that? Don't you believe that the Lord is doing this work within and through me? And then they say, no, I'm not going to give to you. Or they say, I don't use the activity of God as a means of determining who I give to or who I don't give to. That's what people often say in response. But think about that. If you really believe that, then why won't you support it? Why won't you participate in it? Why won't you give in order to perpetuate that? It's a simple way for me to refute 
the fact that they don't really believe that that's what God is doing, and yet they're accusing me of suggesting that that's not what God is doing. Listen, whenever I say something like that, mature believers know exactly what I'm saying. They know full well that when I say I make a contribution or that I do something, people know full well that there is no way that that could have possibly occurred outside of the divine intervention that would be required in order to accomplish that. We know that. Those of us who are mature in Christ Jesus know exactly what I am saying when I say I have done or I have contributed. These metrics are only used in order to state the fact. It's not an opportunity for me to build up some form of religious pride or something. People who are mature and have been given some reasonable discernment can understand this. What I'm saying is that while metrics are very important and can be utilized, when we utilize them or use them in order to manipulate other people into doing things that are not within the boundaries of the truth, that's when it becomes a serious issue. Now let me tell you something about metrics. This is a very important thing that I believe is going to be talked about a lot more in the future. When people use metrics, when they use measurements in order to justify their activities or justify their beliefs, what people have been discovering recently is that the measurements that they are using are not worthy measurements. People are using things like participation in small groups. They're using things like baptisms, as I'm talking about in this program. They're using increases or decreases in contributions that people make as a way of measuring effectiveness. People have been attempting to use various things as a way of measuring the effectiveness of ministries. They're using attendance. How often does a person go to a church or participate in a small group study? They're using various things, but this is the true metric that is eventually going to surface and be discussed. And that is the change of a person's heart. Not the behavior of a person's flesh, but the change of a person's heart. You see, any lost person can be baptized and not believe that there is a God in existence. Any lost person can be baptized and not believe that the Lord Jesus is the true Messiah. Anybody can do that. Anybody can give lots of money, especially if they've got it. You don't have to believe that there is a God in order to give a lot of money to a church or to a religious organization. You don't need to believe what they teach or what they believe in order to contribute to something like that. These are really poor measurements because, believe it or not, there are a lot of unbelievers who give to churches, who give to religious organizations. They do that They do that because they want to, for various reasons that have nothing to do with wanting other people to truly know and have a personal relationship with the true and living God. People have other reasons for doing that. You need to understand this. But there is one measurement, there is one measurement that cannot be affected by anyone. That is the change of a person's heart. How do you measure the increase in peace? How do you measure the increase in rest of an individual? And what I mean by that is how do you measure it in a true, sober way? Because you can affect these things with medications or drugs or by encouraging people to live in denial of reality. That's not what I mean. What I mean is is an increase in sober-minded endurance of an individual's life in the midst of the struggles that they experience. How do you increase the amount of peace and rest in their hearts in the midst of of the struggles and the difficulties that they encounter. Those are different things, and while there will eventually be a conclusion such as this, that people will eventually conclude that there is to be a change in a person's heart, a change in the very core of their being, what they will also eventually find is that they have no way of reaching that kind of a goal. 
They have no way of accomplishing something like that outside of something like medications, drugs, or, or deception, something like that, deceiving people from the reality that they live in. People are going to discover that the only way that something like that can truly happen is by the divine living God himself, that he truly is the only one who can accomplish that. And when this is discovered, they're going to discover that all of their measurements are of no effect because there is nothing that anyone can truly do. A person can say that they do things, like I say that I do things or I contribute things, but the bottom line is that the discovery will eventually be made that without the divine intervention of the living God, none of these things would ever happen. So in the context of baptism, baptizing people may be something that we can do, but it's going to do nothing to change a person's heart. We may want to use that as a form of measurement to try and determine our effectiveness, but this is totally outside of the true effectiveness of the living God, what he will do for an individual, to an individual, as they turn to him. And when people acknowledge this, when they truly recognize that this is the way things are, when people see this as the reality, then there will be a new awakening of dependence on the living God and the one Who he has sent. So don't get lost in all these details concerning whether or not a person should be baptized or how should they be baptized, what is the correct procedure for salvation, what is the right way to get started in your Christian life, to get started off on the right foot, things like that. These are the kinds of things that people are preoccupied with. But I'm here to tell you right now that there is a God who is alive. There is a God who is actively participating in our lives, and in the world that he has created. And he is the one who you are to know. He is not here for the purpose of giving people the right procedure to be saved or to give people the right way of life as we define it in terms of repentance from our sins or obedience to commandments. That is not what he is doing. He has instituted a new covenant that is based on him not remembering our sins anymore And now the least of us to the greatest of us can know our God. Do not let anyone or anything or any teaching or any doctrine distract you from the pursuit of knowing the person who has created you and who wants to love you and show you how to live with all that he has given to you, which is all that you need for life and godliness. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 383-53, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net Thank you,